0: listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode eight of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson. We've all heard of Bywater, but what actually happened? How did Mr. Vandergood get caught? How did he get linked to a Belgian national living in Switzerland? And how did the ATO link Mr. Gould to a range of companies he didn't own a single share of? Robert Campbell was intrigued by these questions and dug Deeper. He didn't have access to any confidential documents or people closely involved with the case and so relied on what is publicly available. But hopefully this episode will give you a small insight into how it all happened.
1: Entities connected with van der Gould have had a somewhat long and chequered history with the tax office from what we can publicly see. One such entity, the Huawang Bank, based in Samoa, had been to the AAT as early as 2004, looking at round-robin loans, so money flowing to this entity and then coming back as, as loans to the clients of that firm.
2: So Van der Gould had already been well known to the um, ATO,
1: If not Van der Gould, at least some of his entities that were starting to hit the radar at the tax office through whatever whatever purpose. That was one such such radar. And another way that Van der Gould hit the radar was through AUSTRAC. There were significant flows of money in between overseas entities purportedly connected with him. And Australia, apparently in 2008 that was as high as a billion dollars that was flowing back and forth at that point again, at arousing more suspicions as to what's going on in this group and and whether or not there is um, some transparency issues within this group. So the sheer size of the investments were one issue. The amount of tax not being paid, potentially not being paid was another issue. The third issue was disclosure laws because they were doing a lot of trading on uh, public listed companies, and whether or not offshore entities were being used to avoid having to make disclosures of any potential takeover activity or hitting a certain amount of shareholding that needs to be disclosed to the market.
2: They didn't disclose those shareholdings.
1: No, no, they didn't.
2: And what about the donations to the Anglican Church in? St Mark's Church, I think, in Downing Point.
1: So over the years there, there were payments coming into either ch- the church or organisations linked to the church, and these donations were coming in from offshore. So that by itself I think aroused a little bit of suspicion as to how an Australian church is receiving money from offshore entities. I would have thought typically if you were – Donating money to a, to a religious organization, you would probably donate in an area that is closer to you as opposed to the other side of the country. These, these companies making the donations were based in Switzerland and incorporated elsewhere throughout the world. So it did seem a little bit unusual that, that, that large amounts were coming in from offshore to the churches. Doesn't mean that there's anything, anything wrong or that there's any wrongdoing there. But it does stand out as being perhaps a little bit unusual.
2: Do you think the ATO wouldn't have picked up Bywater if those donations to the church hadn't been made?
1: Look, My gut feeling is they probably would have, because given the history stretches back to 2004, and that was the AAT, and so it probably stretched back before then when the group started to hit the ATO's radar in certain aspects. What was difficult was trying to prove or demonstrate who is the actual controller of these entities, and that took a lot of time. Also understanding the number of entities involved. There are a lot of companies here, and you know, I dare suggest more will be uncovered in due course. And these donations to the church probably helped with identifying some of the companies. That said, the group was already on the ATO's radar, at least in some form or capacity. And so ultimately, probably still would have been, uh, the conclusion still probably would have been the same. It may have taken a bit longer to get there, though.
2: And was Bywater just his own personal money, or was Bywater also his clients, Vendor Good's clients? money?
1: From what I can tell, and, and bearing in mind, I've, I don't have any, any any insider knowledge, so I can only go off what is publicly available through courts. It seems like Bywater was Mr. Gould's company, as were a couple of others, Chemical Trustees, JA Investments, Derren as well. The company that did seem to have client money involved or intermingled with it was Hua Wang Bank in Samoa. But it is difficult to to point out anything because nothing has been publicly conceded by van der Gould, and I believe he's still very much denying any wrongdoing and denying that the courts were accurate in their conclusions. Okay, so now having a look at some of the entities involved in at least the original Bywater, So we have Bywater Investments itself, and that was a Bahamas Incorporated company, and its shares were owned by a Swiss company, from what we can tell. Its only office holders were Mr. and Mrs. Borges and Mr. Lonsdale. So nowhere does it seem that Van der Gould, Mr. Gould, is involved at all. But despite that, the court were able to link Bywater back to Mr. Gould. How did
2: they do that?
1: Well,
2: just through the donations? No,
1: no, nothing to do with the donations. So what they instead found was that there was another company that they concluded was the shareholder of Bywater, that's another company called MH Investments. And they concluded that MH Investments, so MH Investments was a Cayman Islands incorporated entity, as was another company known as JA Investments, which was either a, a holding other shares, or in the case of Hua Wang Bank, it was a debenture holder of that bank. And under the Articles of, of Association of that Samoan company, that the venture holder was the one that had the the full voting and control rights, not the shareholders. So, in essence, it was the entity that was controlling the bank.
2: And that entity had who as shareholder, Mr. Gould?
1: Look, ultimately the courts concluded that MH Investments was owned by Mr. Gould, but, again, that wasn't an easy process. So his name wasn't necessarily placed everywhere, quite the opposite. He went to great lengths. It would seem to not have any connection with this group, almost, almost almost, you could say that he had no connection on paper. But behind the scenes, Court had found and accepted the fact that Mr Gould was very much running the show, and not just as a hands-on manager, but as someone with ultimate control over everything. So this these groups had different directors, you know, Mr and Mrs. Borges, etc. But they were only following the instructions of Mr Gould, not just taking advice from Mr Gould.
2: He must have had a lot of trust in Mr and Mrs. Borges and and his other business partners because he basically put Close to a billion dollars into their hands, and if they had wanted to, they could have walked away with it because mr wood had no no rights to these funds on paper
1: potentially yes un- unless through banking mechanisms etc, he still retained control and and that's something which we weren't privy to um, and that's probably
2: how they found him because he probably did somehow secure his investments
1: most likely that there 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 was some evidence of him. exerting control over the directors as opposed to simply advising the directors. The JA Investments was an interesting scenario. Again, JA was a Cayman Islands company similar to MH Investments. Now, JA had the Borges as shareholder. However, the courts determined that Mr. Gould was the company's controller, as in accordance with the company's articles, Mr. Gould had the role of being the appointer of the company. And that's a very interesting scenario in this country. It's not something you would see with a company that you would have an appointor, someone who has the power to appoint and remove directors willy-nilly.
2: Yeah, because you usually have, have that with trust.
1: Yes, we don't even see that with a trust. You know, the, 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 the people who have the power to appoint and remove directors in the company is, naturally, the shareholders. And the
2: chairman, you know, yeah. The sure, yeah. the
1: shareholders. In this particular case, so we had a company which had an appointor, and that was Mr. Gould.
2: And that's probably how they found him.
1: It, it's, it's, it's some of the evidence that they use to point to say, the more we look, the more we start seeing one name cropping up. One person influencing or having some form of element of control, while trying to maintain that he's not linked to, to this any group. of it, mm-hmm. and then couple that with things like the donations to the church, which he's was closely linked to, despite the fact that the donations were coming from apparently Mister Borges's company. He um, never
2: been to Australia, probably.
1: Oh, he was actually born in Rockhampton. Oh, I see. So he was Australian, Belgian background but living in Switzerland and donating to a Sydney church. So you can see it does, does sound a little bit unusual. Mr. Borges, I believe, was was Lutheran, so not even yeah,
2: that's Anglican. Right. That's right, yes.
1: So again, you know, yes, okay, the, his argument was, well, Protestants are Protestant and Christians a Christian. But it, again, it does just look a little bit odd that, Lutheran would be donating to an Anglican church. Yes, they they they're, they're very close together, but it just looks a bit odd, especially from the other side of the world. I did like that one. <laughs> I'm Lutheran, so I'll give my money to an English church. <laughs> so in summary, what we have with with the bywater and and all the other entities involved is a convoluted structure where someone's gone to great lengths to conceal their involvement with the group of entities but not so great lengths where their their presence isn't felt at all so there is there were ways that the dots could be connected it just took a lot of investigative work to get there the key takeaway from from the high bywater case Is that no matter how smart or clever your structure, if it doesn't make sense to the courts and you can't demonstrate to the courts that the structure is how it appears on paper, rather behind the scenes where we're running a different set of arrangements, then your structure fails. And if you can see that the ATO do have a lot of resources to pour into investigative work, that... If you try and be too clever, there's every chance the reality will be uncovered eventually. The tracks can't be entirely covered up. You can you can go to great lengths to cover them up and you might be able to hide a lot of them, but you, it's almost impossible to erase every single track out there.
2: But if you don't know how many other bywaters are out there that the ATO didn't pick up.
1: No, you don't. You don't, you don't know how many other entities that could be linked to this. So again, we're starting to see a few more come online as well. And you don't know how many other times someone has gotten away with similar structures and fallen completely off the radar altogether. No one will ever know that.
0: come back. So this was a small glimpse of how the Bywater case came about. One question we touched on but didn't correctly cover was the question where all the Bywater money came from. In 2008 Austrack reported money flows in and out of Australia from good related companies of about one billion dollars. Where did this money come from? This is what it looks like based on publicly available information. Gould's clients invested in a super and an employee welfare fund in Samoa, which they claimed as a tax deduction. I'm not sure how anybody can tax deduct contributions to a non-resident super fund, because as a non-resident that super fund wouldn't be a complying super fund, but let's put that aside. Maybe there was another scheme of some sort. So the money was paid to these two funds, tax deduction claimed, and then they were transferred to goods who are Wang Bank in Samoa, which loaned the money back to Gould's clients. The clients incurred an interest charge to Hua bank for this loan and claimed another tax deduction for these interest payments as well. Gould's clients also paid life insurance premiums to a Vanuetta insurance company and tax deducted these. The insurance company forwarded the money to Hua bank, so the insurance company must have been a related party. And then Hua Wang Bank loaned the funds back to the clients for another round of tax-deductible interest payments. In all, Hua Wang loaned about 95 million back to Goods clients, which suggests they claimed at least 30 million in tax refunds or tax deductions on what were essentially round-robin exchanges. But all this accounts only for a small part of the buywater money, the big part comes from share trading the offshore companies used the funds to buy and sell Australian shares and paid little or no capital gains tax on the profits they made. And they made huge profits. They must have had very good stockbrokers because it is alleged that the network's total return may have been as high as $400 million. And no or very little tax was paid. So this is... How thy water seems to have got one billion dollars to move around the globe. Hopefully all this made some sense. Thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.